Right now, though, we are taking a look at something we have talked about on this show, and it wasn't that long ago. You'll likely recall in around mid-February, some good news coming from Washington State's Governor Jay Inslee reporting that residents of Point Roberts would be exempt from having to provide a COVID-19 negative test at the border because, uh, came to the conclusion, it would be very unreasonable to suggest that because there is nowhere in Point Roberts to get tested. We talked about it then. It was deemed very good news for residents of that tiny community. Well, things have changed a little bit. And joining me again is Brian Calder, who is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, thanks so much for being back with us. Jill, thank you very much. You're showing more concern for Point Roberts than all of the governments put together. They've abandoned us. Uh, that's, uh, that is awful to hear. Uh, I understand that uh, you, you've had a very personal connection to this with a member of your family trying to get to a medical appointment. Yes, and it speaks to your comments about Inslee's release, which was just a press release. It did not, in fact, happen. And this isn't just about my wife's visit yesterday or attempted visit yesterday. This is happening on a daily basis. And what happened was she arrived at the border at 9 o'clock on the Canadian border. She's a Canadian citizen with a green card to live in Point Roberts, where she does live. She said she had a medical appointment in Ladner, which is two miles away, and two guards came out and said they needed to call Health Canada, pull over, we're going to get the screening officer and the quarantine officer, and she got out of, pulled over, got out of the car, and um, they came through. The officer spoke to her and said, medical appointment is not essential unless it's life-threatening. He said further, in my country, and she stopped him dead and said, it's my country too, I'm a Canadian citizen, and handed the phone back to the guards. So the guard says, uh, you got two options, return to Point Roberts, obviously, that's an obvious one, or go to your appointment, in which case we'll inform the police and Health Canada, who issues $3,000 fines and the RCMP gives you a criminal record. So at that point, uh, she decides, I guess I better go home, feeling totally threatened. And as I say, this is happening daily. It, it's like uh, if medical appointments are not essential, then nor is education or work or anything else. It's a total inhumane military mentality, discriminatory, bordering on, in my opinion, criminal. It's a citizen abuse. Have people, it was my understanding that uh, up until this point as well, people have been crossing, Canadians have been crossing to go to medical appointments. It was better before Inslee, Governor Inslee's announcement, when they were supposed to do this, you know, um, um, lessening at the border, because we have had no cases in, well, we had one in a year out of a thousand people. We, we should get the gold medal for being diligent and distancing and masking and so forth. We have more to fear by going into that medical appointment than they ever have to fear from us. I mean, it, it's just bizarre. And since Inslee's announcement, it's gotten far worse, and it's happening on a daily basis. We, people are, we've been abandoned by both countries. So with the announcement from Jay Inslee that Point Roberts residents that are crossing the border would, would not have to provide the test, so is it that that message didn't get to the border guards or, or what's happening with that? Well, because it, cer- 
certainly not to the border guards in Point Roberts. The other option they give some people is they say, get your 72-hour test. You have to have it. And we, we, we quote Inslee, well, Inslee doesn't run Canada. Uh, and we say, okay, well, we can't, we can't test here. There are no facilities here for us to test. So they tell you then, you can go to Bellingham from here, get tested, bring the test card back through to your home in Point Roberts, and then try and come through again. And we'll check with Health Canada. You may or may not be allowed to come through. I mean, it's, you've got to experience it to believe it. It's like you're in the twilight zone. Uh, how many people would you say this has happened to? There's probably three a day. And to, to have a border guard, too, say only if it's if it's life-threatening that you can go. Well, first of all, if it was life-threatening, you'd probably be in an ambulance. And, or, yeah, or in the helijet, yeah. Right. And, and again, how and that kind of raises more questions in that now what, you're supposed to share your health information and your health history with a border guard? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. And, and they don't know, I mean, it's, it's chaos. It is absolutely, you get different answers from different people. And I mean, look, we're a thousand people. We're all clear COVID. We've, I've had the first shot, and so have many others. And, and they say, we don't care if you've had both shots. You're not coming through. I mean, no one's ever looked at it. There has not been anyone from either government in Point Roberts for over a year, pre-COVID, Nothing. Don't care. And if you're ever going to phase in uh, a, a border, we're the obvious ones to be that experiment. We're only a thousand people. So, you know, when it comes to more COVID relief and they're going to open the borders, we know they're not going to throw them open. But if you can take an area of a thousand people and, and annexed, obviously, to Delta and to Wasson and use them as the phase in process, which is exactly what should be doing, taking place. We've offered the money and the resources, the medical people, to put in a advanced, uh, uh, sorry, a rapid testing system right here. We'll provide it to current medical standards. No takers. No, ignored us. What are you going to do next? Oh, uh, we're <laughs> we're running out of of options. I, I'm. I'm afraid of uh, civil unrest uh, is, is my next one. And these people have been locked up for a year with absolutely no support from anybody. I mean, I'm starting to feel a little uh, like what the poor Japanese people used to have to go through in the Second World War. When everything's removed from you, you're locked down. But these, even jailbirds get food and TV and everything provided for them. We're stuck here on our own and left to abandon. We're abandoned. Well, Brian, we're going to continue following this and see if we can get some answers. Uh, But uh, I hear the frustration in your voice. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, We'll talk to you again about this. Uh, In the meantime, I I hope things get better. But uh, again, we'll talk to you again, I'm sure. Jill, thank you very much for your support of Point Roberts. Well, you might remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about a warning that was put out and reports of attacks on 
joggers, uh, people in Stanley Park, and some of the trails, uh, there were aggressive coyotes that were attacking people. Uh, we talked about the warnings. We know a couple of the coyotes were destroyed. But right now, we're going to check in with one of the people who was attacked by one of those animals. Azzy Ramazani joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are you doing? <laughs> I am living a very disabled life. I've had surgery uh, about a month ago um, after my attack. Um, So I'm living a very immobile life. Uh, I have close to non-mobility, can't sit, can't walk, um, and have six months of intensive rehab ahead of me in order to gain my mobility back if I fully gain it back. Uh, it sounds absolutely, that sounds awful. Can, can you tell us a bit about what happened? I understand you, this happened to you uh, late in January, January 21st. You were out for mm-hmm. a, an evening jog, something that uh, you've been doing for years. So what happened? Um, I've been running in the Sla- Stanley Park for over 10 years now, and I always run on the side of the road down Stanley Park Drive where cars and bikers are passing by and there are other runners and walkers who would walk past you every now and then. So it's not a very quiet area. It's not the trails. So I was running down. I passed a prospect point. I was very close to the hollow tree area when I heard this growl and this coyote came out of the trails from the opposite side of where I was, crossed the road and bit me in the back of my leg. And when, it, when the animal bit me, it bit me really hard. When they bite you, they actually, the, the teeth go deep into your skin. So it's very likely that you fall, which I did. But it was still there, and I needed to scare it away because it was going to come back for me otherwise. So I tried to get back up, up, back up again, but I was already hurting from the bite. So I fell again, and I just started screaming until some bikers stopped by, and I was sent to emergency, um, seeing a few doctors and back and forth between the emergency and doing ultrasounds and MRI. I had detached my hamstring muscle from my sit bone, and the muscle had retracted by five centimeters, and my sciatic nerve was compressed. So I had to go in for an emergency surgery so they could surgically attach the hamstring back to the sit sit bone and decompress my sciatic nerve. And this is all because of the attack. Wow, that's uh, and and the reason one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this too was uh, I think we got the impression that the the attacks were nips or were uh, insignificant bites that people were maybe throwing a bandage on and walking away, but this is far more serious. See, this is the thing. I was the 13th person attacked. They'd already put two animals down, which I am questioning right now. So I was under the impression that they had the situation under the control. I wasn't running in the trails at the time I was running. It said that there's a couple of trails that are taped off and you should avoid them. Uh, But I wasn't in the trails. The attack that happened after me, the guy was running the seawall. So 15 attacks have happened altogether. And they're not nips. They actually bite you. They bite you, and if you feel my bite marks now, I still have bumps behind them. And it's very likely that you fall. It's a wild animal. When they attack you, they don't look cute anymore. They are in that vicious mode. So they're going to attack you back. It's very likely that they'll attack you back, and they look scary. I'm all for animal rights, and it breaks my heart that two have already been put down, and then I get attacked after the city had already put two down. So that obviously wasn't the solution. Nipping is not the case. They are biting you. And they're not just in the trails. First, they said not to go to trails. 
Then they said after I was attacked, they said at dawn or dusk you shouldn't go to Stanley Park. Then the 15th person got attacked, and they said to avoid Stanley Park. If you go, you're at your own risk. So what is the root cause? Why are people getting hurt and the animals are getting put down? What is the root cause? This is telling me that they don't want to deal with the situation. They're just having temporarily solutions to that. Uh, yeah, because it seems like even though you, when you were running and, and we, the the warnings had been put out there, uh, you kind of you followed that. You didn't go on the trails. You weren't I doing. Didn't. Yeah. And nobody had said, don't run on the sidewalk. Don't run by the hollow tree or be where you were. No. Nope. And I had cars and bikers so I, on the side of the route that I was on, which I've run for the past 10 years. And these animals have coexisted in the same park with us with zero problem in the past. It's not quiet. There's traffic passing by constantly. And I still got attacked. So the information, the information that's being given to the public is not accurate information. It's misleading. Do you think they should have done more as far as uh, park rangers or the park board should have done more Definitely. about warning people? Definitely. After my attack, they had a campaign. The day after my attack, they had a campaign um, near Second Beach, and they were educating people about these attacks, and people had come forward. This is on the articles in the news. People had come forward uh, letting the conservation officers know that they've seen people regularly feed these animals. This is unfair to us using the park and to the animals who've lived in this park for so long with zero problems up until December this year. Uh, this happened to you at the same time where, because of the pandemic, uh, you were working in a contract position uh, as, a, as a teacher's assistant. Uh, so you've now mm-hmm. lost lost uh, your, your income as well. How are you dealing mm-hmm. with that? It's awful. It's stressful. I'm already going through a massive amount of stress because I'm, I'm a super active person. I love what I do for my work. And now I'm looking at six months of not being able to go back to work, not being able to move around. I can't even get around the block. I lost my income. All I qualify for is 50, 55% medical EI. Six months of intensive rehab and the rest of my expenses are coming all out of my pocket. Uh, you started a GoFundMe page. Uh, that must have been difficult. But also, uh, I'm guessing you, you didn't really look and see that there were any other options. I had no other options. Like, what are you going to do? What am I, who's going to pay for all my expenses? 55% of your wages in these difficult times when everybody's already going through so much, it's not going to do much for me. I mean, what am I going to, what am I looking at? Uh, We're looking at three to four sessions of rehab every week and my full wages are not there. I, I'll give out the, the GoFundMe address to people. Uh, in the meantime, though, what's your prognosis as far as the rehabilitation and getting back to, to where you were before? Well, it's not guaranteed that I can fully get back to where I was before. Um, the surgeon is saying that once I've already started my rehab um, treatment, so I'm, I've started with seeing my physiotherapist, and from there on, I need to do massage and Cairo. So I need to get as much rehab as I can because this is not a very common injury. All my, I had torn off three tendons that attaches the hamstring muscle to the sit bone, and for that to heal, we're looking at a very long process. So we're, if there is a possibility that I will never be able to go back to my full mobility and functionality. Well, Azzy, thank you for joining us and for telling uh, people about this and sharing your story. Uh, I'm sure there will be more to it, or or hopefully we'll get some response uh, from uh, people uh, involved with the park. But thanks again, and, and I hope you continue to get better. Thank you so much. 
Well, as you've been hearing in the news, the one-dose COVID-19 vaccine made by a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson has now been approved for use in this country. The Johnson vaccine is the first single-dose COVID-19 vaccine to be authorized in Canada. Almost 20% of the participants in the clinical trials were 65 years of age and older, and no differences in safety or efficacy were seen compared to the younger groups. That was Dr. Supriya Sharma speaking earlier today. She is the Health Canada Chief Medical Advisor. So what does this mean when it comes to rolling out vaccine? We don't know when we will actually see this vaccine in Canada, how long it will take to actually have supply here. But what does it mean for the future of vaccinations? Let's check in with Dr. Horacio Bach, adjunct professor with the Division of Infectious Disease at UBC. Dr. Bach, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you for the invitation. A lot of people are very pleased to see the news, uh, Johnson & Johnson's vaccine uh, being approved by Health Canada. How much of a, a change does this bring now that we have another vaccine and a one-dose vaccine approved? Uh, that's a big, big change because first we have an extra vaccine so we can vaccinate uh, more people in the population. Um, it's only one single uh, shot, so you get once and that's it. And as in what's happening with AstraZeneca, they are very similar. Um, you need just a fridge a temperature. You don't need a, a deep um, storage, basically, that is happening with the other two, so a vaccine like a Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, this is also uh, a non-replicating viral vector option. So can you talk a little bit, should people care or be concerned at all about the difference in vaccine and that some are the viral vaccine and the other, the Pfizer and Moderna, are the mRNA? Sure. <clears throat> Sorry. The, the viral vaccine basically um, is completely safe and I want to mention also that it's the same base of the vaccine that is used now for Ebola. Uh, what's happened is uh, they took a, a, a another virus, is the one that produced the regular or normal colds during the, the, um, the, the winter time, you know, running nose, very mild symptoms. And in order to avoid that this virus will replicate, means will infect your cell and will replicate, it's like they cut the hands and the legs, okay? So cannot replicate. So what's happening is that the virus is able to infect the cell and instruct the cell to produce the spike protein that is the protein that we use for uh, the production of antibodies. So these cells will express basically the spike protein on the surface and the immune system will identify that, oh, I don't know you, and then they start to do antibodies. And that is the way. This vaccine as the AstraZeneca are completely safe. There is no... Uh, data that showing that something wrong will happen. There are uh, many, many uh, thousands and thousands of people that were vaccinated and it's completely safe. The virus cannot multiply in your body. Once it's producing this vaccine, uh, this protein on the surface of the, pro- of the cells, it will be destroyed and disappear from the body. There is no traces of the virus in the body. 
All right. One of the uh, the numbers, too, people are looking at the efficacy numbers, and uh, there were some concerns. I know last time we talked about AstraZeneca. Uh, what about this uh, this vaccine as well, in that it, it different trials, it looked like, had different numbers, and we're, we're learning more about this. But similar to the AstraZeneca, it seems like this is also a vaccine that even if you do still get the virus, it's 100% protection against hospitalization and or death. Yes. Now, uh, what I want to clarify is that uh, this vaccine, as you mentioned, Johnson & Johnson, is about 65% efficacy, and the um, AstraZeneca is 62 It is not fair to compare with the performance of Pfizer and uh, Moderna because these two vaccines, the trials were performed in the summer last year when we didn't have the variant circulating in the population. These two, AstraZeneca and um, Johnson & Johnson, were, uh, the trials were, were uh, done basically when we have the variants. So it's not fair because I'm sure that if you do now a trial, a new trial with Pfizer and Moderna, you will get the same 60%. Right. What is known from Johnson & Johnson from the clinical trials, they didn't restrict from 18 to 65 years. The only restriction they have uh, was 16, uh, sorry, 18 years uh, and below. So above all the groups were vaccinated. And what you found is that um, it was even better performance uh, compared to Pfizer for the severe cases. It's 85% efficacy for severe cases. means that is, uh, the clinical trial, again, is, is something that is structured in such a way that you have to put criteria. You cannot... Uh, take all the groups. So now um, Johnson & Johnson use a, 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 a different criterion. We can see that you know people even uh, older than 65 years old, they are very well protected. And on top of that, no one died or went to the hospital based on the Johnson & Johnson. means that even if you get the, vac- the, the disease because we have 65%, the symptoms you will have, they are very, very mild. And you can cope with that. Right. It's not, you're not going to end in the hospital, basically. Right. It'd be like having a cold. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so do, should, we be, should we be worried then, though, with variants of concern? Do we know how effective the vaccines are against those? Or are we now uh, using kind of the real world, real time data to, to learn that? Um, well, great question. At this point, we don't know because this variant started to circulate about December, January, so we don't know. AstraZeneca showed that in South Africa, basically, the efficacy was much, much lower because this new variant, and definitely at some point, I'm sure that the companies will start to produce a booster to just revaccinate or take a booster from these people, they got the, the first or the second dose. And in the near future, probably we'll have a mix of, um, uh, let's say, uh, information that we'll give to the cells to produce the protein that can cover both the variants and the original strain. That is the evolution, you know, that you need to, to, to adopt your vaccine according to the evolution of the virus. Right. I, I was listening uh, earlier today to uh, Canada's chief medical advisor, uh, Dr. Supriya Sharma, and it was interesting to hear her talk about that, the clinical trials, what we learned from clinical, clinical trials, and what we've learned with having people vaccinated in real time. How, how different is that, that we're dealing with that? In We're not just taking the information from clinical trials. We are also looking at what's happening and what's changing in real time. 
Yeah, that's exactly exactly the point because uh, uh, you know, uh, real time basically is what you vaccinate all your population, and you start to see what are the outcome. Remember again, the clinical trials they are very very expensive, and that's the reason you have to secure a specific criteria. And you say, okay, I want to have from 18 to 65 people they don't smoke or they don't drink and so on. So all these criteria in general are in the clinical trial. So when you go above that, you don't know what will happen. That's the reason we see that the outcome is much better because it's not exactly the clinical trial. Clinical trial is like something secure to show. And uh, another point we have to bring here that the production, I mean, development and production of a vaccine is take between five to 10 years. So all the questions we have now, you get that in this five to 10 years that you do more and more studies, you follow up the people, you know, they were vaccinated, what they get, what uh, if they get some disease. So all this stuff you get in the regular path that you use to produce vaccine. Now, since it was a global emergency, we, we skip a lot of these, um, um, let's say, barriers because we need to get the vaccine. And now we are learning more and more. Every month we will get more and more data because more people are vaccinated, and then we will have a great information. As in the past, they say Pfizer, you know, only uh, two doses for four weeks apart. Now we go to the second dose for four months, you know, because we got information that is different. Right. Do you think then is the next, uh, there have been a lot of questions too about age and especially that nobody under the age of, I think, uh, 18 or maybe in some cases 16 uh, gets vaccinated because we haven't done the research. So is that the next step, do you think, to do clinical trials on younger people? Yeah, definitely. I think they started, a, a, my, I think Moderna already started in, um, in below 18. And we, we have to remember that except, you know, not taking into consideration, uh, you know, young people that have some uh, background diseases, this population in general is very healthy. Mm-hmm. And you see that the level of uh, uh, hospitalization or issues as a result of the vaccine is probably zero or very low. So it means that it's very strong population. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that will be the next step to check, you know, um, the, I mean, kids or in the babies, you know, if they can get and what is the, the adverse effect, because you have to check that. And that definitely will come very soon. All right, Dr. Vak, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much again for joining us. You are very welcome. Stay safe. Well, not a huge surprise. We've been talking about this. Uh, Restaurants that are open are working at a very much reduced capacity, hoping that takeout will pick up some of the slack, but that's uh, not uh, quite enough. We're seeing numbers dropping when it comes to revenues for restaurants, many looking forward to a post-pandemic world. But will that world look different when it comes to restaurants? My next guest has written about that. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor in food distribution and policy at Dalhousie. University. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, how different do you think things will be as far as, I guess, first off, is getting people back and feeling comfortable if people have been avoiding restaurants? Yeah, so first of all, we should uh, let your listeners know how things looked like before the pandemic. And uh, you see, our, our food world was divided into two Restaurants and home. And uh, so the market was divided into two. Uh, On the one side, you had retail, and retail was worth about 65% of all the money we spent on on food. 35% went to restaurants. So it was a 35, 
65 split. That went down to 991 in the middle of April uh, during the first cycle of lockdowns. So 9% service restaurants, 91% retail. Hmm. And so that was a huge drop. Now it's up again. Uh, now Q2, uh, so during the second um, quarter of 2020, it went up to about 19%. Now, uh, according to StatsCan, uh, in the last part of 2020, uh, 24.3% of all the money we spent on food went to restaurants. So basically, the split right now is 25 75. So the question that everyone is asking themselves is, are we going to ever get back to at least the 35, uh, 65 split we had before COVID? And, and do you think we will? Not, not early on. I mean, uh, what, uh, what is, uh, what needs to be appreciated is the fact that people are still concerned. I mean, there's, there's this fear, uh, and restaurateurs will have to, uh, will have to <laughs> adapt and uh, and appreciate that people are just trying to befriend this virus or variants or whatever's going on outside. And uh, it, it, I think it's going to take a while because this pandemic has been is is a year old now, and so a year is long enough to get people to think all the time about you know something they can't see. And it must look different, though, across the country in that in B.C., restaurants have been open for dine-in for several months. They really only closed for for a short period compared to other provinces that had far more strict rules. So so the the numbers must vary, though, as you go across the country. Oh, absolutely. Now, of course, if you uh, well, if you take the two provinces, the two largest provinces, Quebec and Ontario, that's 60 percent of the came population uh, both markets were hard hit by lockdowns and there still are and so of course uh, restaurants uh, were affected what's really kind of interesting is that there's been only 22 bankruptcies since august <laughs> so still that's not the right metric to look at when it comes to uh, understanding the misery that restaurant operators have actually gone through we are expecting uh, about 25 to 30 percent of all restaurants to close forever and not to return. But there's I mean, this will create an opportunity, though, for uh, for for innovation to bring in new ideas, new styles, new cuisines. And so whenever there's a and that's why I called it. I was speaking earlier this week at the Restaurants Canada show in in, uh, well, it was virtual this year, of course. But my message to the audience, to restaurant operators, was this is this is the great reset. I mean, you're you're this is an opportunity for you to redefine the industry, to look at things very differently. How you deal with your employees, and how you deal with your customers as well, and how you operate your business. And so, what do you think will look different then for for restaurants that uh, want to that do survive? That number I find is huge, twenty five to thirty percent. But for those that do. Yeah, it is. Yeah, those that make it through, will they have to change how they do business? I think so. Uh, and beyond the, the you know the PPEs and everything we know now, I think it's really it, that restaurateurs will have to be a little bit more innovative in terms of how they serve people. Uh, I think the biggest one to me is how employees are paid. Now, I'm not sure if uh, in BC you've had that conversation about no tipping. You see, when you travel around the world, most of the time tipping is actually included in the price. 
except in North America. In North America, the culture is about you know empowering the consumer to tip whatever he or she wants. But there's a lot of research looking at tipping as being discriminatory. Uh, it, it, it's not it's unfair for employees, and it doesn't really attract people. It doesn't create opportunities for careers down the road. A lot of people have lost their jobs as a result of COVID, and perhaps the food industry, the food the, the food service industry, could be this one place people could repurpose their careers. But to work long hours and and, and get uh, limited tipping and and of course the conditions working conditions are not always great. I think with the Great Reset, uh, it would actually get restaurateurs to think differently about the workplace, not just to offer you know a pass to something else, but a, a career. And there's been a lot of conversations about that in industry, and I think this is really the right time to have that conversation. Uh, so going towards more uh, a salary, or do you think going towards more of a model like we see in other countries where tipping is included or the wages are much higher? Exactly. The problem right now is that nobody wants to do it because if you actually add the tip to your price, well, you become uh, you're not you're not very competitive. So it has to happen uh, across the entire industry. And so uh, and and there were a lot of discussions at the RC show this week in Toronto about that. Hmm. Uh, do you think it will also change as far as what what people expect? I think you and I actually had this conversation when at, at the very beginning of this pandemic, where grocery store shelves, food was flying off the shelves yeah. because there was this frenzy. Yeah. People thought they were going to shut down. But we talked about the fact that things that were selling out were pasta and canned goods and pasta sauces, whereas you could go in the produce aisle and it was still fine. And, and we came to the conclusion that people maybe don't know how to cook all that well and they're going for the, the things that are really easy. Has, has that changed? And will that change what people expect from restaurants? That's a very good question. So your question really is, are Canadians more food literate? Yes. Uh, that's essentially your question. And, and the answer is probably. Uh, <laughs> we actually released a, uh, a report on this about a month ago. We asked people how many recipes they knew before COVID, how many recipes they know now. Are they gardening? Are they trying new ingredients? And 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 the reality is that I think a lot uh, a lot of Canadians have actually learned recipes, but not a whole lot, just a little uh, enough to explore. You know, to try new meats, for example, like elk and rabbit and duck, and uh, and because restaurants were closed, right? And uh, most of the time when you go out, you want to treat yourself with something you can't cook. Well, they, a lot of people, you know, had the audacity to try something new. Uh, they tried oils and spices, and so uh, you're right. Restaurateurs will be dealing with the different marketplace, a more educated marketplace, and expectations also will be different. All right. Interesting uh, findings or interesting uh, discussion points about that. Sylvain, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Have a good weekend. Well, there has been another update in a long-standing legal battle in this province. It has to do with the public access to two lakes that are surrounded by a private property. Earlier today, the BC Court of Appeal released its decision between the Douglas Lake Cattle Company and the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. At the heart of this, two lakes that are surrounded by property belonging to the ranch. So what does this mean for access to the lakes. For that, we have reached Rick McGowan, a member of the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. Rick, thanks so much for being with us. 
Oh, no problem. Glad that you got me on there. Well, it's an interesting one that we've been following along for so many years. So what does this appeal court decision mean as far as access to these public lakes? Uh, it's pretty serious because they've completely reversed the original trial judge's rulings on all aspects. Um, it um, basically privatizes those lakes for the rest of the time. They're saying there's no access to the lakes and they've... Um, uh, basically privatized water because they're saying that to get to the public part of the lake, um, you have to cross. You have to cross their private land, and um, that means that they can charge you with trespassing, which means that any body of water in Canada that has been raised artificially, artificially or naturally that, that rises over a private property line is now you'd be trespassing if you go over that. Now, this is different than as far as this goes against the the, the ruling. The, the BC judge ruled in 2018. That ruling actually sided with the Nicola Valley Fishing Game Club um, after the I know access to the lakes had been blocked. What's been happening in the two years so, uh, since that ruling? Well, the Douglas Lake Cattle Company and the BC government appealed it, um, both on the fact of the public access issues and the trespassing issues and the special cost issue where the government was supposed to pay half and Douglas Lake was supposed to pay half. And that's sort of been ongoing up until now. We had the appeal, and, and this ruling just was just released. But other than that, a, a few people have been going up there fishing. The locks were off the gate, and uh, people could get there. Um, but now I suspect that it'll all be locked up, and they've made it illegal to access for, for now to the end of time. Uh, and in that ruling that uh, it was made in 2018, so the judge in that case said that the provincial government, the B.C. government, retained rights to the lake. The fish in the lake were public pro- property as well as those, the, those particular uh, parts, uh, the lakes themselves. Therefore, the public was entitled to access to the lakes. So it sounds like the appeal court has come out and found error with that or has, has ruled actually that's not the case. Um, no, they're, they're still saying that the fish in the lake are public fish, um, and you can fish in the public part of the lake, but you can't get to the public part of the lake, which is the bizarre aspect because that affects thousands of different lakes. And right now, or in the last two years, um, Go Fish BC, which is completely 100% funded by freshwater fishing licenses, has put fish in Minnie and Stony Lake for two years, and now this ruling basically gives all those publicly funded fish to Douglas Lake. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but you could say if you could somehow get to the lake by helicopter and drop into the lake, it sounds like that would be okay, but you just can't go over land to get to the lake. Exactly, that or a float plane. But you've got to think of all the different lakes, like, uh, like large lakes or other lakes that have private property on them and multiple landowners. If the water level goes up over the property line, then that means it's illegal to get or you're trespassing to get to those public part of the lake. This has huge ramifications for a lot of lakes that a particular landowner may own the property all around the lake. Uh, what happened in this case, in the, the case of the Douglas Lake uh, Cattle Company, when, when they purchased that land or when that the cattle company was established, uh, you would think they must have known or or would they have that the lakes on the property are public property? They, they did, and they would have. But what, what history has shown, and most people don't realize, Douglas Lake Cattle Company never owned all the lots around these lakes originally. They all went to various 
old settlers uh, through Crown Grants, and there was multiple owners, which obviously meant that they all had a right to go to the lakes. What Douglas Lake over the years has done is bought up all those district lots and now are amalgamated into one ranch. But that doesn't really change the law about the lakes, even though they're now saying it does, and that they can control the lake. Hmm. Uh, have there been confrontations uh, as far as people get, trying to access these lakes? Uh, in the past, yes, myself included. But in, since the court ruling, no, there's been no, no conflicts. But I'm sure now that uh, Douglas Lake is going to reassess their opinion that they can control the lakes and kick everybody off of them. What happened when, when you were involved in a confrontation? Uh, basically, la- uh, a ranch... Uh, employees would come out and tell us to get off there in in not so pretty terms and you know there's a lot of hollering swearing and um we were charged with trespassing and and sent bills for fishing Hmm. Uh, what will you do then in this case do you do you think that this is something that could potentially go to the supreme court of canada um i've been i've been informed by our lawyer chris harvey that there is cause to go to the supreme court of appeal but in, in our case, um, funding is obviously a huge issue. Um, ultimately, what is required now is if, if some um, affluent person want, would come to our aid and, and take it there for public interest and future generations, that's kind of what we would have to have because our little fishing club, it's not our job to look after access to lakes and, and roads, etc. Provincial ministries are supposed to do that, but they're, they're clearly not doing it. But our little club doesn't have a lot of funds. No, and your your club has been going up against an American billionaire. Exactly, and and you know what is right is the laws in British Columbia, uh, different ministries are su- supposed to protect the rights of all British Columbians with in respect to the natural resources of BC, with you know lakes, fishing, everything. But the government is clearly not doing it, and they're acting in the interest of the rich people. Uh, did they make an argument, uh, the Douglas Lake Ranch, uh, sorry, the Douglas Lake Cattle uh, Company, did they make an argument in that they felt their land was being damaged or uh, that trespassing had become a big issue or they wanted to to privatize the lakes or they wanted the lakes only for their own use? Or what was their argument? I mean, they'll always use the argument that that there are idiots out there that will throw garbage around and do damage. But, I mean, that that's an uncontrollable thing in the whole world. But, yeah, no, they basically went um, entrepreneurial at um, all of their properties. And in the case of Stony Lake, they built a multi-million dollar lodge there and basically locked the public road, dug it up, and put a dam on and, and flooded the public road, all without permits, but with the government's knowledge. Hmm. And you've mentioned this, the, the per, potential ramifications for other properties. Uh, do you think this will set uh, a bad precedent? Absolutely. Like We have another lawsuit filed on Corbett Lake, and that, that's been just pending, waiting for the result of this one. And now I'm sure they're going to just lap it up and say, okay, fine. Because in that particular case, there's three different landowners, and the lake was raised over all of their lands. But one landowner is taking is, is taking control of the lake um, over the benefit of the other landowners and the public. Well, I'm, we're going to wait and see, or definitely watch and see what happens next. I get to your point saying uh, that one uh, small club can't take on this. I know it's been called the David and Goliath type case in the in the past, so hopefully that changes. Uh, in the meantime, thanks so much for coming on the program and talking about this today. And thanks for having me, and it, it just keeps it in the public uh, opinion and view a little longer, and that's great. 
Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. We are talking now about a new treatment or a treatment that is helping people with MS, helping people with brain trauma and who are having difficulties walking get back on their feet. And joining me to talk about how this works is Dr. John Klein, who is the medical director of the Klein Medical Centre. Dr. Klein, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Jill. We also have Molly Ann joining us, who is a patient who has used uh, this treatment. Molly Ann, thanks to you for being here as well. You're welcome. Uh, Dr. Klein, I wanted to start with you. What exactly is it we're talking about uh, as, as far as this treatment and what it does? Well, PONS, uh, P-O-N-S, stands for uh, a new uh, treatment called Portable Neuromodulation Stimulator. And it's an innovative and non-surgical medical device that gently stimulates the surface of the tongue, so it's put on the tongue, and it sends one million impulses per minute of electrical microcurrent stimulation directly through nerves into the base of the brain. And what that results in is the the brain... uh, being able to basically heal itself through a process called neuroplasticity, which is uh, where the the brain cells, they reform the connections that uh, have been lost through uh, either trauma or through diseases like MS. Uh, Molly, I'll bring you in now uh, as well. And you learned about this treatment, I understand, from some local media coverage. Uh, the clinic, I should mention, is on Vancouver Island in Nanaimo. Uh, what was your condition dealing with MS when you first started hearing about this? My condition then was um, accelerating. I felt vulnerable walking, uh, open areas. I was uncertain. Um, I was having to be very, very cautious. I was falling a lot. Uh, You lose count of the falls after a while. And uh, uh, low energy, uh, hard to focus. Um, My husband said my my speech was slurred. I didn't realize that, but he said that was happening. And um, just walking in general, just so very uncertain, not being able to stand in one spot comfortably, you have to reach out to hold on to something to feel confident. That's, yeah, that's basically it. It's um, not a fun experience. Uh, no, it doesn't sound like it. And in fact, uh, my sister had MS, and what you've just described is also exactly what she went through also. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You, you went through this 14-week program. So when did you start noticing changes or seeing improvements? After I started the pawns, um, as I've mentioned to Dr. Klein, the changes were subtle. Uh, I would think two and a half, maybe three weeks into the program, I would stop and notice what I was doing. The changes came subtly and automatically. Instead of having to think of what to do, each step, whether it's your hands or your feet or picking up something or bending over, I noticed the changes were there. But I didn't notice them at the beginning because they were subtle. And then after being on the pawns treatment for a longer period of time, it just became so very evident 
of, of my improvement. Were you doing other treatment as well? Was this in addition to other uh, types of treatment? Um, I was going, I, I'm an avid gym goer, and um, I go to a, a, a personal trainer in Duncan, and I tried combining the pawns a couple of times when I was working out at the gym, but wearing masks right now, uh, it just made breathing too hard. Mm. But with the pawns, it is stimulating your brain. It's challenging it all the time. And the exercises I do at the gym and the exercises I do with Marcella, with her, with her okay, I've been able to uh, take many of Marcella's uh, exercises and apply them to the gym. But unfortunately, while we're wearing masks, I can't use the pawns there. But I, of course, use it at home all the time. Uh, Dr. Klein, I'll bring you uh, back in. There must be some that are questioning this, saying, well, if this was, this was such a, a cure, wouldn't it be widespread in use and wouldn't, it be, wouldn't we be hearing so much more about this? Is it because it's a new treatment or, or what would you say to that? Yeah, it's a good question, Jill. Um, you know, I first uh, learned about PONS in uh, a 2010 McLean's Magazine article on how the brain can heal itself. And uh, I read about the initial research uh, done at the University of Wisconsin on the PONS device in people with multiple sclerosis and was astounded and thought, you know, I'll never see this in my career. But, you know, Health Canada approved it for use approximately two years ago, and there are now about 20 clinics across Canada of certified uh, PONS uh, uh, treatment centers. Um, And if you consider there's about 95,000 people in Canada with multiple sclerosis, um, you know, there is going to be a growing demand for this as people find out about it. Um, but it's also indicated for post-traumatic brain injury. And uh, studies have shown that, you know, about 74% of people with post-traumatic brain injury will recover with the 14-week PONS program. And it's similar for people with mild to moderate MS who have uh, gait and balance deficits. So I think um, as people like Molly Ann recover, uh, their family and friends notice the remarkable improvement and uh, the word of mouth gets out and social media and so on. And would you describe it then as when you use the word recover, is it is it helping to, to stop the, the disease in its tracks or is it making it more manageable? Well, uh, that's unknown at this time, but uh, I think it's uh, making the disease more manageable. Um, I view it as pulling people back from the the brink um, mm-hmm. or the edge of the abyss, uh, causing you know injured nerve cells to uh, regain their function and form uh, connections with other brain cells around them. Um, and then neural networks come back uh, on 
uh, track, so to speak. And so um, most of the people that have gone through the multicenter trial for post-traumatic brain injury, most of them had long-lasting effects. And, uh, of, of course, research is ongoing. Um, but it certainly is probably the most astounding treatment I've seen so far in my career of almost 40 years. And Molly Ann, what would you say to others perhaps that are living with MS or have a loved one or mild to moderate traumatic brain injury uh, that might be a bit uh, hesitant or, or, or not sure about this? Uh, I was unsure at the beginning, hearing about the pawns, but there is nothing else out there except heavy drugs and I just didn't want to take that route. But the minute I met Dr. Klein and Marcella at the, the clinic, I just felt so confident and reassured that this is what I had to do. No questions asked. So when I uh, started my program with them, I do want to mention here, if I may, the very first day my husband and I went up and met Dr. Klein and Marcella, Marcella put me through the easiest exercises, walking a line, stepping over a Kleenex box, walking forward, looking left and right, all the basic, simple things that a person with MS just takes for granted. But with MSers, it's a challenge because you're off balance all the time. Well, that first day, Dr. Klein videotaped me, and then when I was eight weeks into the program, he videotaped me again, and I was doing all the exercises Marcella asked me to do. And at the end of the 14 weeks, um, he videotaped me again. When they put the video together and showed it to me, when I first saw myself day one trying to do those simple exercises, I was absolutely horrified. I, I almost cringed seeing myself walking that way, my posture was dreadful. I was totally uncertain. Um, my movements were not fluid. It was a shock. And then at the end of the eight, um, eight weeks, I guess it was, it was visibly, visibly um, so clear of the improvement. And that at the end of the 14 weeks, I was almost running hmm. on the green line. All right. Well, uh, amazing uh, story, amazing uh, results uh, coming from this. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but I appreciate so much that both of you could come on the program today and talk about this. Thank you so much. Thank, well, thank you, you for having us. Hi, right. Dr. Klein. <laughs>